This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to Heritage Matters, a programme brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust and sponsored by Ryman Healthcare. I'm Dougal Stevenson. In this week's programme, Gregor Campbell adds an unusual footnote to Dunedin's first hanging. Bill Southworth studies the cuisine of our first settlers and we look at the lavish lifestyles of some of our early councillors. Captain William Jarvey was subject to a strange twist of fate after he clashed with an acquaintance in a 19th century cobbler's shop in Dunedin. The two men came to blows, and the acquaintance, a man called Gatley, made a threat to Jarvey, which would come to fruition in a most unexpected way. This report from Gregor Campbell. So generally, after 11, the cobbler's shop was filled with a throng of customers and callers, among whom were many strange characters. One of these in particular impressed his fellows in a peculiar manner. He was a man who was naturally avoided, who seldom entered into a general conversation, one who decidedly had a past. This sinister individual was tall of stature, very gaunt, with dark straight hair, pallid complexion and deep-sunken, furtive eyes. He was occasionally clean-shaven, an unusual circumstance in those times, but more often a thick, dark stubble covered his hungry-looking blue jowls. Of this man little was known. Other than that, he went under the name of Gatley, but rumour had it that he was an ex-convict or ticket-of-leave man and had been hangman and flagellator at Botany Bay. Another person who frequented the cobbler's shop was a sea captain named Jarvie, and he had a particular aversion to Gatley and took every opportunity of showing it. One evening, when the shop was full, a quarrel arose between the two and Jarvie struck Gatley a severe blow on the face. Gatley took the blow rather quietly, too quietly in fact, and after wiping his blood-stained mouth, he pointed a long, lean, brown hand at Jarvie and exclaimed, By God, Jarvie, I'll get you for that blow yet. He then left the shop. When questioned, Jarvie objected to explain the cause of the quarrel. But Gatley's words were prophetic. After this, whenever they passed each other, Gatley could be seen staring and muttering at Jarvie. The business of the town flowed on. Men came and went. The happenings of yesterday were eclipsed by those of today. Then, in a couple of months' time, it was publicly announced that Captain Jarvie's wife had died after a short and painful illness. Her funeral was a large one. The body was followed to the grave by many friends and sympathisers of the captains. A few days later, a rumour spread that Jarvie had been arrested for the murder of his wife by poisoning her. After a short interval, he was brought to trial, and later the jury found him guilty of murder and he was condemned to death. On the morning of the execution... When the condemned man was about to mount the scaffold, the hangman stepped forward to pinion him, and Jarvie found himself looking into the sinister face of his old enemy, Gatley. The sheriff reached the jail before ten o'clock, as did Dr Hume, provincial surgeon, 
and Mr T M Hocken, coroner. At quarter before 11 o'clock, the tolling of the prison bell was commenced. The convict's cell closely adjoined the day room. In the latter, the prisoner was to be pinioned. Those who were admitted to the day room could hear the fervent tones of Mr Connaby while engaged in prayer, and they could hear the convict respond firmly and earnestly. Then the voice of the chaplain could be heard, and when it ceased, the voice of Mr Connaby pronounced a benediction. When the sheriff and the governor of the jail presented themselves at the cell door, and the clergyman entered the day room, the sheriff made the formal demand for the body of William Andrew Jarvie for execution, but the convict requested that he might once more see Mr Connaby. That gentleman and the captain returned to the cell. Again the voice of prayer was to be heard. The ministers prayed first, then the convict prayed, briefly, but with seeming sincerity. Once more the benediction was pronounced, and then the convict walked into the day room. He wore the suit of black clothes in which he appeared during his trial, and his hands were gloved. He looked pale, but only slightly so. There was not a sign of nervousness or agitation about him. He advanced to the jailer and shook hands with him, saying, God bless you, sir. He also shook hands with the sheriff and some of the officers of the jail with a brief goodbye. The hangman had now entered, a light and shabby frieze coat, a slouched white hat, and a muffler formed his disguise. The pinioning was commenced, the convict standing firmly erect and shifting his position to facilitate the hangman's work. Nay, he directed it, speaking to this effect. Don't buy me too tight. There, that will do. Let me go a little more free. Loosen that turn a little more. Let it go down by the side so that they may be straight. The sheriff made an observation and the convict added, Oh, this will do so that they come straight. While the hangman was knotting the rope at the back, the convict with slight impatience remarked, There, that will do now. You've done enough. You're a long time about it. Tuck that end in. He will pull me back presently, sir, if he pulls in that way. They're quite tight enough, Mr. Sheriff. Make them straight down across the arms, sir. I tell you, they are quite tight enough. Mr. Connaby, as soon as the day room had been quitted, commenced reciting the burial service. I am the resurrection and the life. And the reverend gentleman continued while the rope and cap were being adjusted. Half a minute elapsed, and then, with an indescribable clank, the bolt was drawn. The body of the murderer had disappeared from the few spectators who stood in the yard. The fall was terrific. The twang of the rope was a sound not easily to be forgotten. After a few seconds had passed, the hands were twice slightly raised with a sharp, convulsive movement. Then there were several movements of the throat and chest, and later a tremor ran through the body. This was the last visible sign of life in the human frame of William Andrew Jarvie. But we understand that for more than ten minutes after the drop had fallen, the surgeons were able to detect a faint pulsation at the wrist. Dr Hume, the medical officer, then signed the usual certificate 
and several of the parties present subscribed the declaration required by law. After hanging an hour and a quarter, the body was cut down and it was found that the fall of the rope, six feet, must have caused instantaneous death, the vertebrae of the neck being completely dislocated. The countenance was calm and placid, as if he had died an easy, natural death. The coroner, Dr. Hocken, subsequently held an inquest on the body, when a verdict of having been hanged by due course of law was returned. Captain William Jarvie almost got the last word at his hanging, and I will give him or his remains the last word in my story of him, not that he deserves it. In 1899, the Dunedin jail was demolished to make way for the present law courts. As part of that process, the three bodies buried in the prison yard were removed and placed in the Northern Cemetery. A contemporary report went, The police are investigating a theft of a most peculiar nature. The Department of Justice were removing the remains of the three murderers who were buried within the precincts of the old jail. After being uncovered, the remains were left pending an order for their removal being received from Wellington. In the interval, however, some person, presumably a collector, took a fancy to the skull of the late Captain Andrew Jarvie, executed for the murder of his wife, and annexed it. The police hope that anyone offering for sale a skull other than their own will be made to account for it. I am the physically complete Gregor Campbell for Heritage Matters. When European settlers started arriving in New Zealand, most experienced a better way of living. One of the most important improvements was the good food they could now eat, meaning many ate decently for the first time in their lives. Bill Southworth has been looking at what caused the change. History often records the lives of the well-off and well-educated rather than the lives of ordinary people. But enough is known now about how the other half lived in Britain in the middle of the 19th century to paint a pretty bleak picture of their day-to-day existence. Most of those who took the risk of leaving the old country and taking the long, uncomfortable and sometimes dangerous voyage by sailing ship to New Zealand did so because their previous life was often pretty miserable. This was especially true of the poor food they ate. In the mines and factories, they often had to work 14 hours a day and took their meal breaks standing up at the workplace, making do with a crust of bread. Here's an account by a skilled industrial labourer named Charles Robinson of tough times in the earlier part of the century, when his wages were nine shillings a week and a loaf of bread cost one shilling and tuppence, forcing him and his family to live on what was known as crammings. Crammings was what was left of the grain after the flour and bran was taken away. We made a sort of pudding with it. You ask, how did the people get on? Well, they got into debt, and then again they lived on taters. But butcher's meat we never heard of, and never saw it except in the shops. And Charles Astridge, who also spoke of cramming, said, They made your inside feel if it was on fire, and sort of choked ye. In those days, we'd see children come out into the streets and pick up a piece of bread and even potato peelings. Things were not much better for farm labourers, a group which immigrated to New Zealand in large numbers. 
Many farm workers have been thrown out of work when the agricultural production on farms changed from labour-intensive cropping to running sheep and cattle instead. In his book, A Distant Feast, The Origins of New Zealand's Cuisine, social historian Tony Simpson writes, Farm labourers ate even more badly in the 19th century than their town counterparts. They may have been responsible for the production of meat and dairy produce which the burgeoning middle classes enjoyed, but these items rarely appeared on their own tables. Nor could they easily supplement their inadequate diet by their own efforts. They were mostly forbidden to use the land surrounding their cottage, often a rural slum, to grow their own food. The outcome of such poor diets was endemic illness and a premature death. People from these classes were faced with a stark choice. Either they stayed and put up with it, or they immigrated. It's no exaggeration to say hunger in one form or another drove our European ancestors out of Britain. In the 20-year period between 1861 and 1881, over half a million immigrants entered New Zealand. On their long voyage, most settlers travelled steerage class, and still had to put up with quite awful food. The ship's rations were doled out to groups of ten or so, who were expected to cook the food themselves. A passenger called Antoine Falchery recorded the monotony of this food. In the morning, salt beef with dried potatoes. At noon, salt pork with rice. At two o'clock, dried potatoes with salt beef. At four, rice with salt pork. Lord bless you. If we wanted to, we could at six o'clock have both salted beef with potatoes and salt pork with rice. Some could barely tolerate the food at all. Emma Hodder, a passenger on the Hydaspis, bound for Littleton in 1869, complained pathetically, I feel weak for want of something nourishing. I'm going to remain on deck while I all go down to dinner, which consists of rice and sour bread. I cannot take it today. But it was the contrast between the food and steerage and that provided to the well-off passengers who travelled in what was known as the cabin, which was most surprising. Animals were taken on board to provide fresh food for the non-steerage passengers. Those in the cabin were able to dine with the officers and eat lavishly. Martha Adams, who dined with 16 cabin passengers in 1850, recorded that she had... Roast beef is good as if just from the hands of a country butcher and your own cook. Mashed potatoes and carrots, stewed beefsteak, boiled salmon, green gooseberries and damsons. Then we have every day four, if not five, dishes of meat at dinner with fresh pork and mutton joints, meat pies, poultry and curry. And the plum pudding we had today would weigh, I should think, six pounds. Ironically, passenger Warren Adams described the indignation which reigned in the cabin in 1851 when fresh provisions supplied to the first class ran out and they were reduced for the last three weeks to eating the same food as the steerage passengers. Adams described the salt meat they had to dine on as most uneatable. It didn't seem to occur to him that most of the other passengers on the ship had been forced to eat that unpalatable food for the last three months or more. Once they arrived in New Zealand, ready access to land changed their lifestyles and their diets dramatically. Even small savings helped in purchasing some land and a way of living not available for ordinary people in Britain. As Alexander Bathgate noted in 1874, 
In Dunedin, very many working men live in their own freehold cottages, and in some suburbs they're almost exclusively filled with neat little houses owned by working men. The quarter-acre section, with its veggie garden and chooks, was born. As Tony Simpson points out, In the late 19th century in particular, everyone who could kept livestock of some sort, usually chickens and pigs, and for the better off, a cow. This had been forbidden to the rural poor in Britain, and was the aspiration of many urban dwellers. Now free to do as they pleased, they seized the opportunity with such enthusiasm that the town ordinances of this period seem obsessed with the problems of wandering livestock, of the smells and the effects on the state of the water of keeping pigs in the midst of the suburbs, and of the crowing of the cockerels. It sometimes seems that the men who owned these small holdings spent every leisure moment growing fruit and vegetables, while the women of the households took care of the animals. The soil was good for growing food, and many commented on how much better the vegetables seemed to be than those in the old country. Meat, which had been an occasional luxury for many, was cheap and plentiful in the new colony. Louisa Johnson, who landed in Dunedin in October 1874, wrote home to her friends in Granborough. I wish a lot from Granborough would come. Joe says he would get you all a meal such as you never had at home. George Catley, a shoemaker, wrote to friends in Nittleton, This is the place for beef, steaks and mutton. What with one good thing and another, I'm getting quite stout and have every reason to like this country. The first settlers cooked and opened fires in wide fireplaces. Bread was usually made in camp ovens, which were basically an iron pot with a heavy iron lid. As the century progressed, open fire cooking became rarer. Ranges came into use from the 1860s, and before long, the coal range became a feature in most homes. In the 1880s in Dunedin, Henry Shacklock, an iron moulder, designed the Orion stove, which ran well on New Zealand coal. Was freestanding and didn't have to be built into a fireplace by a skilled bricklayer. The coal range cost six pounds, about three weeks' wages for a skilled worker. Shacklock's range and the lesser-known brands became a standard item in the vast majority of New Zealand homes. Home baking now flourished and added variety to what was a healthy but largely unimaginative national menu. Meat and two veg, usually overcooked, dominated. Plain it may have been, but it was infinitely superior to the poor food most had left behind in Britain. Using the high-quality food produced locally in the next hundred years, Kiwis gradually adopted dishes from French, Italian, Chinese and other cultures, giving us the wide range of wonderful dishes we enjoy today. Food, glorious food, had finally, truly arrived. I'm particularly grateful to Tony Simpson for much of this material. This is Bill Southworth reporting for Heritage Matters. The Silverstream Water Race was a vital addition to Dunedin's water supply, built in the 1870s and in use for 90 years until replaced by a pipeline. The source of water, the Silverstream and several of its tributaries, was a pure one from forested hills, but the race itself was, over the years, less than perfect. Visits to the ongoing construction project were reported by the papers of the time and there was a certain amount of criticism as to the picnic character of the excursions by reporters who, no doubt, did not refuse the ratepayer-funded beer and sandwiches involved. It would seem from those reports that it was not until the official opening 
of December 15, 1881, that the main source of the city's water supply was visited, as reported in the Otago Daily Times of the next day. Opening of the Silverstream Water Race The actual completion of this very important scheme for the water supply of Dunedin and suburbs was yesterday commemorated by a formal opening ceremony at which His Worship the Mayor and the greater number of the councillors assisted. Besides several officers in the employ of the corporation, who have lent material aid to the work in question, invitations had been issued to the four city members of the House of Representatives, of whom unfortunately only one, Mr M.W. Green, was able to attend. Mrs Fish and Dick were at present away from town, and an apology was offered by Councillor Fagan for the absence of Mr Bracken, who was unable to escape from business duties. At eight o'clock precisely, some four or five buggies hired for the occasion were waiting at the corporation buildings, but the arduous task of safely bestowing the various cases representing the commissariat for the day necessitated some slight delay, and it was therefore nearly a quarter to nine before the cavalcade finally took its departure. The scenery passed through was sufficiently well known to need no description, and suffice it to say that at about 11 o'clock the party halted at Fari Flat, about three and a half miles from the head of the race, where preparations for their arrival were evidently afoot. A structure, which it is difficult to accurately describe, had been hastily erected resembling an arbour and a Māori whare in proportional degrees, save that it was lightly, very lightly, thatched with evergreens, and, as subsequent experience proved, not entirely weatherproof. In front of this triumph of inventive genius, which sheltered a well-provided table, two flags had been hoisted in honour of the occasion, and a small number of spectators, awaiting the revival of the procession, were exuberant in their manifestations of approval. The band of municipal wayfarers here partook of some slight refreshment, and immediately afterwards commenced the ascent of the adjoining range, in order to fittingly assist at the formal ceremony of turning on the tap. Arrived there, it was discovered that a small stage had been erected over that portion of the race, through which protruded an iron handle to be turned by his worship, who thus raised a slide below and threw the channel open. From the upper part of this arrangement was suspended a bottle of real Rurderer, from which further it became Mr Ross's duty to break with a two-foot rule, thus affording the citizens of Dunedin a taste of that celebrated compound in the first water drawn from the new supply. His Worship then, amid loud cheers, declared the Silverstream water race formally opened and expressed no doubt as to the scheme proving an immediate success. The question that then arose was whether or not it was due to the ratepayers that their representatives should push on manfully to the front, meaning, of course, the head of the race, and having regard to the fact that the appetites of the company still needed sharpening, it was decided that such a sacrifice was demanded of them. A walk therefore commenced along the picturesque ranges through which the race has been conducted, and before the three and a half miles had been covered, it became evident that one or more of the party had had enough. However, the journey was pluckily completed, and arrived at the head of the race, perseverance was amply rewarded by a glimpse of the fairy glen from out of which the silver stream emerges. Only for bodily fatigue, further exploration might possibly have been attempted, but as matters stood, it was deemed advisable to use all promptitude in returning to the buggies and the bottled beer. 
Half a mile on the journey back, the chairman of the Water Supply Committee, who took naturally a not unimportant part in the day's proceedings, showed signs of being baked and, by a masterly stroke of diplomacy, secured a mount from one of the guests. After this arrangement, all progressed merrily, and about two o'clock, the party sat down to an excellent cold luncheon in the Fari aforesaid. This having been done full justice to, His Worship the Mayor rose to propose the usual loyal toasts, which were duly honoured. The toast of the Legislative Assembly and House of Representatives followed, to which Mr W. Green, MHR, briefly responded. Owing to his recent connection with the legislature, he was enabled to say but little on the subject. It seemed from the returns they had before them that a large number of members in the last parliament had been defeated in their elections, but he had no doubt that the new representatives would for the most part prove equal in ability. He had great pleasure that day in visiting the source of what was henceforward to be the Dunedin water supply, because he wished to acquire a practical insight into all local works of any importance, so that in the event of their coming before the house, he might be in a position to speak of them from personal knowledge. His desire now was to act as a representative of the city, as well as of the particular division for which he was elected. He would conclude by proposing success to the new water scheme, coupled with the names of those gentlemen who had been so active in carrying it into effect, Messrs Blair, Campbell and Mirrens. Mr Blair said that he had come out there to enjoy himself, not to make speeches, and would not trouble them further than to thank His Worship and the Chairman of the Committee for the entertainment provided for them. He must express his pleasure at witnessing the completion of this work, which he regarded as an undertaking of great importance, and though he might perhaps have been the originator of the scheme, he must point them to Messrs Campbell and Mirrams as the gentleman who had carried it into effect. For his own part, he thoroughly believed in it and would advocate it against all other schemes that had been proposed. Mr Campbell followed, stating that he also believed the scheme to be the best one that could be devised for the supply of Dunedin, chiefly because it could be prolonged indefinitely so that they would never have to do as other cities had done, continually originate fresh methods of water supply. Mr Mirrams, who also responded, after some preliminary remarks, said that he too thought the council had secured a first-class service and that if necessary with the increasing population, they could bring down three times the quantity now required. Several other toasts were then proposed and responded to, amongst those of the visitors, the mayor, the vice-chairman, etc., and the proceedings finally terminated with a few eulogistic remarks by His Worship on the indefatigable manner in which Councillor Barnes had worked with the chairman of the Water Supply Committee and during the whole period of his connection with the council. A very pleasant excursion was thus brought to a close, and the party returned to town by six o'clock. I'm Gregor Campbell for Heritage Matters. This programme, which will be repeated on Sunday at 7pm, is kindly sponsored by Ryman Healthcare and brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust. Ryman Healthcare prides itself on offering some of the most resident-friendly terms in New Zealand.
Ryman Healthcare's Francis Hodgkins and Yvette Williams Retirement Villages in Dunedin offer the very best of retirement living and care. For more information and to discuss your retirement living options, please phone Kate on 455-7936. Ryman Healthcare, supporting Southern Heritage Trust and the Heritage Matters Programme. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.